You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, a watershed moment for Amazon and all of its workers. A vote to unionize at the second largest private employer in the country. Will it drive a push for organized labor across the United States? We will discuss. Plus, a U-turn in China's tech delisting plan. Chinese authorities preparing to give U.S. regulators full access to auditing reports of the majority of the 200-plus companies, Chinese companies, listed in New York. We will break it down. And Fractal is the new NFT gaming company in town created by Twitch co-founder Justin Khan. Why does he think NFTs are the future of gaming? Khan joins us in an exclusive interview this hour. Workers at an Amazon warehouse in New York have voted to join a union. It is a historic victory for organized labor. Amazon has managed to keep unions out of its U.S. operations for more than a quarter century. The vote wasn't even close. Those in favor of the union winning by 10 percentage points. We are joined now by Lynn Vincent, assistant professor at the MJ Whitman School of Management at Syracuse University, along with our Bloomberg senior executive editor, Brad Stone, who's been covering Amazon himself for decades. Brad, Amazon is the second largest private employer in the country, so this could potentially be huge. Just how remarkable do you think this is? Well, it's, it's certainly historic, as, as you said. Amazon's been fighting union attempts in the U.S. Uh, probably since the late 90s, when it first started in a customer service call center outside Seattle. And if you remember, Amazon closed that facility and just moved the work elsewhere. So it's fought these efforts bitterly. In Europe, there have been unions. There have been work stoppages. Amazon typically kind of routes around it. And so I think, look, it's historic. It's unusual for Amazon. But it's just the beginning. I mean, this is one facility. Amazon, as we reported today, is going to contest it probably in court. But then the real work begins, bargaining. And will Amazon even sit down with this new and very untested uh, union? And, you know, and then will it renegotiate things that it does give uh, employees like a $15 an hour wage? I think this this group led by Chris Smalls, a former Amazon employee, is now going to be very, very much tested. 
Chris Smalls has been a huge character in this whole story. I, I want to read Amazon's statement here. Amazon saying we're disappointed with the outcome of the election in Staten Island because we believe having a direct relationship with the company is best for employees. We're evaluating our options, including filing objections based on the inappropriate and undue influence by the NLRB that we and others witnessed in this election. Lynn, it sounds like Amazon is intending to make the argument that basically President Biden's pick to run the labor board swung this in an activist direction. Does that argument hold water? I don't know about the, the legal implications there, but it, historically when we look at organizations and unionization attempts, the power imbalance is in favor of organizations. So I would be surprised if that held a lot of water in court, but I wasn't on the ground. I didn't see what happened specifically in that distribution center. So what is your outlook on just how this could ripple across the United States, across other Amazon warehouses, but at other companies where employ employees could look at this and say, maybe we should do this too. It could have enormous effects because Walmart and Amazon were the untouchable giants, and now they're not so untouchable. It's still an uphill climb for other Amazon distribution centers and other organizations but the momentum is there and we've seen the momentum continue through the, the nation. I mean, we have movement at Starbucks, at REI, at Condé Nast, Alphabet workers. So it's there. And I don't see that this movement is going to go away soon. Now, Brad, at the same time, you're looking at a similar vote in Alabama, this is a do-over vote because controversy around the first vote. That one going at this point in the other direction. It's too close to call. It'll likely be challenged. But so far in Alabama, it's looking like the union is not coming out on top. Why, why are we seeing different outcomes here? Well, I mean, I, I think, look, looking at Staten Island and New York City is probably pretty important. I mean, this is, I think, the second most unionized state after Hawaii in, in the country. New York City's have even higher, Staten Island probably even higher, just in terms of union membership. You had a group here with Chris Smalls and his colleagues that employed the kind of community activist playbook in terms of using social media and getting arrested, a very, very innovative um, playbook, and, and also speaking as former Amazon employees. So I think that had something to do with it. Um, I think I think Lynn's right. There are some important kind of symbolic victories here for a labor movement, an organized labor movement that's probably been losing ground over the past few decades, just in terms of the sheer number of union members. Um, but I, I still think it's, it's too soon to say that the tide is really turning. I think Amazon, it has this immune system response to, to unions in its supply chain, and it fights them to the nail. And I think probably workers at other fulfillment centers are going to be watching and waiting to see if Chris Smalls and his colleagues can convert today's important and very symbolic victory into meaningful changes for Amazon workers. We're actually looking at video of Chris Smalls popping a bottle of champagne on, on the back of this vote. Lynn, you know, do we need a character like that if other 
other pushes for organized labor in other parts of the country, at other Amazon warehouses, at other companies, is really going to succeed? I think the case of Chris Falls is particularly interesting because he led that independent union. When we look at the tactics he used uh, in terms of change management, coalition building, he was really smart. Amazon has a particular playbook that they use when it comes to fighting unions, and Chris Mull's tactics kind of subverted them. It was really clever. It's the next step will be negotiating, which is going to take a lot of effort, a lot of resource allocation. Um, so the transition to that process will be harder, but he seems to be focusing on participation and bringing the workers' involvement in. So if he continues to do that, he could be very successful. Brad, what kind of roadblocks do you think Amazon will throw up next, here and elsewhere? Boy, we, we, we probably can't even conceive of, of, of what they'll resort to. If you look back across the arc of Amazon history, they've shut down facilities. They've walked away from facilities that have even attempted to organize. I, I don't think in 2022, under Andy Jassy, Amazon can or will do that. Although, you know, frankly, a couple of years ago, they, they shut down, as you remember, Emily, H, the HQ2 project in Long Island City because basically it had become about unions and mayor at the time, Bill de Blasio said, uh, New York City is a union town, Amazon, you're going to have to accept it. And they and the next day they closed shop. So, but, you know, Jassy's a little bit of a different CEO than Bezos. I don't think they'll do that. But I think they'll fight tooth and nail. I think these legal objections are just the beginning. I think... Uh, bargaining tooth and nail for, for everything um, with uh, Chris Smalls and his colleagues. We can certainly anticipate that. And maybe they don't reach a contract and maybe there's a strike and maybe Amazon resorts to you know, replacement labor. And we have a, a big battle with the world watching. I, I really don't think they're going to allow Smalls and, and his union to kind of set an example because they do view it as a little bit of an existential challenge for the company and the relationship they have with their million plus workers. Lynn, I see you nodding your head in agreement with what Brad is saying here. What do you think comes next from Amazon? I, I think they are going to fight tooth and nail, just like was said. Um, though they, the location offers some challenges and benefits. I mean, they are. It's in a pro-labor town, in a pro-labor state. Uh, that and they have a lot invested in that area. They have multiple distribution centers. It'd be hard to shut those down easily. That being said, they are in a large urban area with a greater labor supply possibility. So it's they have some things going for them and against them. It'll be interesting to see what they choose to do. Well, the scale of this is certainly potentially massive. Amazon employing one and a half million uh, workers in the United States alone. Lynn Vincent, assistant professor at the MJ Whitman School of Management at Syracuse University, along with our own senior executive editor, Brad Stone. Thank you both. We'll continue to follow. 
Sticking with Amazon, the tech giant gave CEO Andy Jassy a pay package worth $212 million last year. Almost all of that came in a stock award, 61,000 shares. Those vest between next year and 2031. Jassy took over from Amazon founder Jeff Bezos back in July. Coming up, Apple's foray into fintech, how the iPhone maker plans to develop its own payments processing technology, and what it all means for the rest of the fintech world, next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You soon may be able to pay for your iPhone or other Apple hardware in the same way that you pay for iCloud, Apple TV Plus, or Apple Music. Apple's working on a secret project to create an iPhone subscription service that would allow users to pay for their phone monthly via their App Store account. This would differ from normal Apple and carrier installment plans as the fee would be a proprietary price based on which iPhone model the user chose versus just the cost of the device divided up by 12 or 24 months. As part of the initiative, Apple would let iPhone users replace their model each year as new versions are released. Over time, of course, the recurring revenue would generate even more money for Apple, but it would also allow consumers to get new iPhones more frequently and not have to pay $1,000 outright for a new high-end model. Apple has also internally discussed tying the program to Apple One, its services bundles that include TV+, Apple Music, Cloud Storage, News, Fitness Plus, and more, in addition to Apple Care technical support plans. 
Similarly, Apple's also working on a widespread buy now, pay later service for Apple Pay. It all goes to plan, Apple could launch the hardware subscription service later in 2022 or sometime in 2023. I'm Mark Gurman, this is Power On. Mark Gurman there for Bloomberg, and don't forget to sign up for his weekly newsletter, Power On, at Bloomberg.com. Sticking with Apple, Bloomberg and Mark reporting earlier this week that the iPhone maker is developing its own payments processing technology and infrastructure for future financial products. To talk about that and other fintech news, I want to bring in Jackie Reese, CEO and founder of Post House Capital. Jackie, great to have you back with Good us. I'm curious what your I'm curious what your read is on Apple digging even deeper into the financial services world and what this means for other fintech players. Well, I'm not at all surprised. I mean, for a few reasons. First, they process hundreds of billions of dollars worth of payments throughout the entire Apple ecosystem. And so the scale with which they operate is extraordinary for any type of payment system to run throughout their network. The second thing is they've been in payments for eight years and they've already shown interest in launching both payment and credit products. And what they're doing in particular with pay and for, for example, is enabling consumers to just buy in another form. So it's a tender type, meaning it's a type of money that you can use. And what they do is make it easier to pay with your device and pay over a period of time that makes it easier for consumers to control their monthly spend. And so it obviously is helpful because from Apple's point of view, it creates engagement. It creates this relationship even after a transaction because the servicing relationship for a pay and for enables them to continue to build a relationship with a consumer on their phone. So there's tons of utility there, both for the consumer who wants to control monthly expenses, as well as for Apple who wants to continue to dig a little bit deeper into the consumer's wallet. Who does this hurt the most? What does it mean for a PayPal, for example? I don't think it's going to hurt anybody. I think it is a new form factor and way to pay. And you'll see it proliferate across wallets everywhere. And so you'll see the credit card providers do it. You'll see specialists do it like uh, Affirm, Afterpay, Klarna. And I think you'll see it as just another payment vehicle for consumers to use. And so maybe it changes the whether someone uses debit, whether they use credit or they use a digital form factor, but it's just another way to expand the relationship and continue to give options amongst all of their products. We've seen a number of fintech stocks take a beating this quarter. I mean, we're looking at a lot of red on the screen there. Affirm, I know you're on the board of Affirm, PayPal, SoFi, Block, you used to work at Square for many years. Why do you think fintech in particular is taking this I know there's a broader down market, but fintech seems to be taking it pretty hard. You know, it, it, fintech had an unbelievable series of years between 2020-21, where funding and valuations reached fairly heady heights. 
And so you see an, a reset back to valuations that are more standardized levels of valuations, particularly given the growth of these companies. I think you'll always see them operate with disruptive multiples, meaning they'll operate with multiples that are higher than the non-technically advanced companies in the payments and financial sector. But they came back to a more sustainable multiple level in this overall market reset. Having said that, the private market also reset. And uh, in 2021 alone, you saw a 645% increase in crypto investments. You saw a uh, similar increase in fintech investing. And all of that had reached a level of valuations and um, levels of interest that really had peaked and it just kind of came back to earth. I still see huge opportunities in this sector. It's one of the okay. biggest sectors in the United States and around the world. And it's a sector where the traditional companies that operate in this market are for the majority of the public companies over 50 years and older as companies. And so there's incredible opportunity to be disruptive in this space. So I, I still see lots of opportunity and lots of investment um, even today. You're an investor in the crypto market, and I'm so curious how you're thinking about DeFi and adoption trends. The inter information just came out with a pretty explosive headline talking about Andreessen Horowitz versus Jack Dorsey and a crypto, quote unquote, holy war that is brewing. Okay, I think that's a little dramatic. Having said that, um, it is entertaining. Um, I think DeFi is fascinating because it changes the paradigm of who controls and who owns companies and who, who operates them. And so I do think there is an opportunity to expand the aperture of how these companies are run and created. I also think we're only in the first inning of DeFi. We really are seeing tons of experimentation, whether it be in infrastructure or even in vertical products, but you haven't really seen use cases come to fruition and build significant scale companies where you're seeing okay. these broader use cases used in consumers' day in, day out lives. But the experimentation right. that's out there is pretty exciting. And I think it, along with the rest of the crypto market and the fintech market, continues yeah. to show the level of interest in investing in this area of, uh, of the United States economy. Jackie, before you go, I want to ask you quickly about your new book, Self-Made Boss, which you co-wrote and you talk to entrepreneurs, owners of small and medium businesses, really, you know, some of your customers when you were working at Square Capital. What was the catalyst for this quickly? Um, catalyst is small businesses need help to start, run, and grow their business. They are half of the economy, two-thirds of job growth in the United States. Lauren Weinberg, my co-author, and I really saw the need to create a pragmatic guide to help small businesses build their companies through feedback from other small businesses. And it's a helpful tool to help them, again, start, run, and grow their business. Jackie Reeses, Post House Capital, and new author, Self-Made Boss. You can check it out on Amazon. Thank you, Jackie, for joining us. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Potentially huge news from Twitter today. Or is it news at all? Twitter tweeting that the company is working on an edit button. 
Then again, it's April Fool's Day. Ed, what do you think? Is it a you know, joke? I've, I've been reminding you, Em, all day long it's April Fool's Day. This is a joke, right? This is what the people want, but, but clearly this is a joke. This is what I want, but I'm guessing this is a joke. Unfortunately, <laughs> Twitter has resisted for years an edit button, right? So why would they do it now and on April Fool's Day? Give us the edit button. And even investors think it's a joke because right, the stock didn't move did, I, know. I checked. I checked. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, well, we'll have to see tomorrow. And yes, you were the one preparing all of us not to fall for it. I know. Um, all right. Ed Ludlow, thank you. I want to talk more about Chinese tech stocks rallying now with Race Capital partner Edith Young. Edith, first of all, what do you make of the Chinese government? potentially taking a really unprecedented step like this, given how secretive and protective the government is about its own companies. Well, I, I hope this is not an April Fool jokes uh, from, from the Chinese authority. Same. But I think, <laughs> um, who knows? Uh, they also have a sense of humor as well. Yeah, that's well. a good point. <laughs> and, and, and I think, you know, obviously, you know, based on what you and Ed just discussed, it, um, you know, it's, it's amazing to see the stock really rally up this morning. And, you know, for the last 12 months, all the Chinese stock and the 200 plus companies been under a lot of pressure and haven't been, it's just been a really, really tough time for them. So I think like this particular announcement, um, from, from my point of view, is just three implications. One is, it's amazing to see the Chinese authority is willing to work with um, the U.S. to potentially open this up. We will see how it goes during the summer, but this is really at the government level um, in terms of cooperation. It's sort of amazing to see. And, and this particular implication, in some sense, is very historic because it's been a lot of pushback you know, for many, many years. So number two is it's great news for the listed companies because combined market cap is almost over 2.1 trillion that we're talking about. It's really nervous you know, for many, many other investors, for for all the CEOs in the public listed companies. So now is you know the Chinese authorities are willing to sort of really sort of lead the charge. So is that's great news. And number three, from the point of view from a startup, there's so many different startups really been wanting to go IPO in the U.S. And now there's light at the end of the tunnel. So it's great news overall. And last but not least, I still have family and friends. Now is under complete lockdown, particularly mm. in Shanghai right now, and it's just so bad. So economically, we really need some good news in China. Well, so I wonder if this is going to be part of a longer-term strategy, given that the Chinese government has been cracking down on its own tech companies for months upon months now. Yeah. Are we going to see a broader easing up? Um, I uh, I really hope so. It's, I, I don't. I'm definitely not qualified to comment on you know what Chinese authority and government would do. But one thing for sure, I think that Chinese government really wants to you know support the economy. Um, and think what happened with uh, at the end group, or of course it's not purely just for regulatory with with ad tech or 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 on the fintech so sectors. It's just overall, I think the whole economy because of COVID have been been. Um, really going through some tough times. And I think right now the government really wants to sort of help and push this along. And at least, you know, for us from, from a early stage investor and as, from a startup point of view, this is really, really good news. And I think they really wanted help not to suppress it. So what is your assessment now of whether investors should be 
getting into or staying in Chinese tech stocks, public companies, and whether Chinese companies in general are smart from a private market or venture capitalist investment perspective as well? Then, well, I think like from a private market, um, there are many, many areas that is a little bit more I don't want to want you, but from healthcare or semiconductors um, or any sort of electric cars. And, you know, frankly, China has been the, one of the fastest growing market for companies like Tesla. So China actually as a whole is still the, one of the second largest in terms of um, GDP in the world. So it's a huge market. And I think as much as so the Tencent and N group of the world or Baidu seems like the, the stock buy hasn't been so great, but but still is huge, huge in terms of user base. And I, I'm so really, really bullish about the Chinese market. Uh, we can't predict what Chinese government wants to do, but at the same time, just in terms of the health and, and the future of the economy is still really, really bright. So in general, I take a very positive attitude. Now, I want to turn to crypto now because you've backed some of the biggest crypto names out there yet, Solana, FTX. Why do you think we're seeing such uh, hesitance on the part of public market investors to double down on crypto amidst this broader market downturn? There was a thought that cryptocurrencies could potentially be decoupled from traditional equities, but we're not really seeing that. Well, I actually, I mean, I guess it really depends on the day. Um, Emily, I think you and I catch up uh, December last year, and I actually predicted you know, every, for the last five years that uh, three crypto winters. And swear to God, every January there's some sort of downturn, particularly with Bitcoin. Um, but having said that, in the last few days, you know, the crypto market really rallied up once again. So in my head, there's a few things. One is, you know, last in, in 2021, it's been red cut high in terms of early stage crypto venture and just look at like FTX alone, the revenue has just been insane. And I think that more and more what we're seeing, I, in, in some sense, I think the Biden administration with the executive order, you, you certainly, the White House can't say, um, I want certain things to happen, but they really have give their blessing in some sense. Still need to wait for all the agency to give the official to, to regular, regulate this. But at the same time, I do think that we're going in the right direction. In certain institution, regardless in the Cowan of the world, uh, which invested in PolySign in, uh, in terms of custodies, there are more and more institutions um, offering actual products for so that the, the family offices, so many sort of consumer to get into the game. Just starting with you know Coinbase being public and FTX, I don't know when, but also going to the right direction in terms of getting all the licenses or regulatory compliance. I think right. more and more will, will come in. Edith Young, Race Capital Partner, thank you as always for joining us. Coming up, the co-founder of Twitch, also getting into crypto and NFTs. We'll speak with Justin Kahn in a broadcast exclusive about his first venture capital round for a new gaming NFT company, Fractal. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. 
Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The future of NFTs in gaming. Fractal, the new NFT gaming company founded by Twitch co-founder Justin Kahn, just raised an additional round of funding from crypto-focused investors like Paradigm and Multicoin Capital. I want to bring in Justin Kahn now for more on his vision. Justin, we know you so well for experimenting with and popularizing early technologies from Justin TV to, of course, Twitch. What makes you think NFTs in gaming are the future? Uh, well, it makes me, f- it feels it feels like those early days of live streaming. You know, uh, 15 years ago when I started off on the internet and we were building Justin TV, which is a company that turned into Twitch, there was a lot of experimentation on how are people going to interact on the internet. And today in crypto and, and NFTs particularly, it feels like there's all this experimentation on how are people going to regard and exchange value on the internet. And that's what's really exciting to me. What does a successful game that uses NFTs look like in your vision? Yeah, it looks like a game. You know, I think that NFTs are the new business model of gaming. And in 10 years from now, you know, we won't think of blockchain games or games with NFTs as something completely separate. Uh, we're going to see it as like, these are games that have assets and those assets are worth something. People trade them, they own them, they take them with them. And uh, it's just going to be something that's kind of standardized. So today, if you look at the games that are most popular in the world, they all have virtual assets, right? They sell skins, characters. You know, these are games like Fortnite that everybody's heard of or their kids play. And I think the next step in the evolution of these digital assets is that they're going to sit on a blockchain and people are going to really have ownership of them. And yet there's a huge debate about the future of NFTs in gaming. A lot of folks in the gaming industry don't want this to be the future. Why do you think there's so much pushback? It reminds me a lot of free-to-play. You know, you, you and I were both kind of around when this came out. Free-to-play as a business model came out in gaming maybe around 2007, 2008. And those early games in free-to-play were, you know, they were like Zynga games like Farmville and Mafia Wars and 
Um, there was a lot of pushback from gamers then. They said, these games aren't great. You know, they're not good. They're not fun. They're just viral, you know, something viral. They're not, uh, I don't want to pay like incrementally. I just want to pay up front. And then, um, you know, what happened was there was more investment in the model. People built better games. Uh, people built games that they want to play in general. And then what happened was, you know, 10 years later now, it's like every game is a free-to-play game and the market is worth like tens of billions of dollars a year in digital assets. And so uh, I think the same thing is, you know, can be said of crypto or crypto games. You know, people are saying uh, these games aren't good yet. They're, you know, we don't need NFTs. Like this is not something that gamers want, but I think it's, it's actually something that will become that predominant model as the games become better. That said, where do you see hype in this industry, whether it's about NFTs or crypto or play to earn? I know you're not a huge fan of that in particular. I mean, are there technologies that you see getting a disproportionate amount of attention that shouldn't be? Well, I think that the kind of fundraising, like the, the, the amounts that games are raising is we're capturing is capturing the imagination of both the game studios and players and sometimes it's you know people are like oh it's ridiculous that these games that haven't launched yet or have very rudimentary gameplay compared to like a triple a title in a, the traditional world you know are raising hundreds of millions of dollars or like have these economies that are worth billions of dollars you know and they think it's overhyped and to some extent uh that might be true uh so i think that the fundraising aspect is a little bit overhyped what what's really exciting to me as a technologist is just this idea of like these games becoming shifting from closed economies where, you know, the game company controls everything to really open economies where there's an ecosystem of developers and players who, you know, control what happens uh, in the economy. And to me, that's going to inspire um, more people like these games to become platforms on top of which many different developers build experiences. And um, these open ecosystems, I think, are going to be like much more durable and worth a lot more in the future. Now, we're seeing a fight to own the future of DeepFi among venture capitalists and bigger players like Jack Dorsey. The information just had a controversial headline talking about how Mark Andreessen and Jack Dorsey are kind of starting the holy war of crypto. You know, what do you think about the competition to invest in this space and whether it'll really be decentralized at all or whether it's just a different group of players owning it? Yeah, I think the the argument really is between the you know, like kind of how much decentralization is enough decentralization, right? And on Jack, on one side is like, you know, these VCs are funding and owning a large portion of these protocols, so it's not like truly decentralized. And um, I think Mark's position, you know, I want to speak for him, would be like, well, someone's got to fund these things, and and it's like decentralized enough. And I think it really depends how the, the answer to the question really depends on like what your use case is, I think. So for something that's like Bitcoin, which is a store of value for this massive amount of people in the world, you really want like a huge amount of decentralization. Um, and I think for, you know, something that's maybe more like a game, uh, you know, might be variable how much decentralization you really need, um, you know, because like how much that like how important the assets are that there's like true decentralization and no one could ever, you know, take control over this or, 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 um, you know, like, I think that's, it kind of depends on the use, right? Like DeFi might be like much more security might be the most important thing for a game. It might fall somewhere in the middle. Now you've made a choice, uh, fairly early on to build on the Solana blockchain versus Ethereum. Why? Yeah. Well, so, you know, what prevented me from getting into crypto as a builder for the longest time was usability. You know, I was like, 
I, I, I saw Ethereum with interest and invested in Ethereum. Actually, I bought Ethereum, you know, like in 2017. I was like, this is really interesting, but I didn't really see how you could build an application with the transaction throughput of something like Twitch, you know, um, on it. And so what really got me excited about Solana was, you know, for the first time, I really felt like, oh, you know, normal people could um, build on top of this and you could build something that reached a mass audience because the, you know, kind of trans transaction speed and cost was low enough that it made sense for maybe something more like a gaming use case where you might have like many different NFTs, NFT items in a game and you might trade in and out of them like very quickly within one playing session, you know? So really it was like a usability, you know, choice, but like at the end of the day, uh, Fractal wants to be wherever game studios want to be. And so our goal is to become multi-chain and expand to everywhere that game companies want to build their products. All right, Justin Kahn will be watching to see where this goes. You'll have to come back soon for a progress report. Twitch and Fractal co-founder Justin Kahn, thank you. Brightline, which provides virtual behavioral and mental health services to kids and their families, just raised an additional $105 million in funding led by the private equity firm KKR, along with earlier investors like Alphabet. What's to come? I want to bring in Brightline CEO and co-founder Naomi Allen. Naomi, thank you so much for joining us. We've been hearing a lot about the mental health crisis, behavioral health crisis facing kids and teens across the country, in part as a result of the pandemic. What is the need you believe is not being met that you're trying to fill with technology? Emily, thanks for having me. The need is a national, high-quality, accessible, and affordable solution for families. So today, even pre-COVID, one of five kids had a diagnosable behavioral health condition, and 80% did not get appropriate treatment. And that's because historically, care has been really hard to access and hard to pay for for families. So how does Brightline solve that problem and make sure that it's solving it with quality care? Great question. We've built a care delivery system where we hire and manage our own team of pediatric trained coaches, therapists, psychiatrists, and speech language pathologists. We bring those services to insurance companies and we contract with those insurance companies to make sure the services are affordable to families. And then we provide those services virtually so that no matter where you sit in the country, you can access high quality uh, behavioral health care for your kids. We've built this all through a model which has been proven and tested to be effective. And we measure clinical outcomes every single week for the children that are in our care. How would you say the pandemic has exacerbated this crisis? You said one in five before the pandemic. What's that number now? The incidence rates of pediatric anxiety and depression have both gone up about 30%. And there's new data that was just released last week by the CDC saying that one in five teens have considered committing suicide in the past year. So what we're seeing is across the country and, and frankly even globally, a sharp increase in terms of the need and the severity level of pediatric behavioral health conditions. And again, that was building on already a point of crisis for the country. Now, I think the other thing that we're seeing is a, an acute shortage of clinicians and especially clinicians that are willing to be in network with insurance companies. And so the affordability crisis is real as well. So with better access and better care, how do you think those numbers can change? 
Yeah, we believe that there's no reason for kids all across the United States not to be able to receive care within a few short days of seeking care and treatment. Now, we have a long way to go as a country still working on stigma with parents and caregivers, but we're seeing actually stigma go down meaningfully amongst the new generation of children, adolescents, and teens. So that's that's good news. We're seeing actually a lot more openness. And so what we need to do is create affordable and high-quality access, and that's really what Brightline is scaling across the country. You know, the other thing that we think is critical is reducing the lack of equity and equitable access. Today, 75% of the counties in the United States don't have a single child or adolescent psychiatrist. And so one of the ways you reduce that, that lack of equity is by scaling using technology. So we've built a virtual solution to reach kids and families no matter where they are in the country. All right. We'll be watching Naomi Allen, co-founder and CEO of Brightline. Thanks for sharing your story with us. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Don't forget to check out our new podcast. Find it anywhere you get your podcasts for our daily news roundup. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Have a wonderful weekend, everyone. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.